Mad Men just made me want to like chain smoke. Chain smoke and day drink. That's yeah, like know, that, that movie the... what there that show wasn't good for me. I never finished it. It wasn't good yeah. for me. I would watch it and be like, that looks good. And then I wouldn't smoke inside, of course. So I'd have to step out. Like it took me so long to finish a single episode <laughs> because you just keep going out like, every every three every three seconds. Every like, time, okay, Don, every time, Donald I'll have a, Draper I'll have likes a cigarette. It's like you. I'll join you. I'll be right back. <laughs> The lights are dim, smoke curls in front of the flickering screen. You stare at a turned away enigmatic face, wondering what exactly is going on behind those smiling eyes. It's time for the Projectionist Lending Library with your hosts, Eric Klein and Nathaniel Booth. Join us, won't you? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Projectionist Lending Library. Today, we're going to talk about Patricia Highsmith's novel, Carol, which was originally published as The Price of Salt, and Todd Haynes' film adaptation. Uh, I'm Nathaniel Booth. And I'm Eric Klein. Uh, Eric, how familiar are you with Patricia Highsmith and with Carol? Uh, going into this, I had never heard of this book or this movie. I had heard of Patricia Highsmith. I only knew her because of the talented Mr. Ripley stuff that she did, which I never have read any of those books. I just remember the Matt Damon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Matt Damon and, and a very young, very beautiful Jude Law. Uh, so I remember that movie when it came out, however long ago, and that she did Strangers on a Train, which I have yeah. neither read nor seen. It, it's so there's a way that, yeah, I, I knew who Patricia Highsmith was. I knew the kind of novels that she wrote, but I'd never heard of this movie. I'd never heard of this book. Went into this pretty clueless, pretty blind. Okay. I was in a similar but not identical situation in that I did know about this book. And um, well, you found it just at an underground Chinese bookstore. Yeah, you know, I should say very clearly when I say underground, it's literally underground. It was a thoroughly right. legal bookstore. Yeah, not like a um, black market underground. Just not a black, no, no. A bookstore that is in a basement. A bookstore in a basement. I was just there one day and I saw Kate Blanchett staring at me from the shelf and I had to pick it up. Yeah, so, I would have done the same. So I had seen the movie before and liked it very much. I think my attitude toward it has modified somewhat since reading the book, but I still like it. We can talk about that later. I had read The Talents of Mr. Ripley, and I had watched every single movie based on a Highsmith Ripley novel. Only movie of those I've heard or knew existed is the talented Mr. Ripley. You should watch Purple Noon, which is a older version of the talented Mr. Ripley. It's got Elaine Delon as Tom Ripley. And okay. it makes a really interesting companion piece, partly because whenever they film Elaine Delon, 
they give him exactly the same sorts of glamour shots that women at the time were getting in film. Elaine Delon, one of apparently he's a not a great person, but he's one of the most beautiful actors ever to grace the silver screen. And the camera just caresses him. And if you compare that to the talented Mr. Ripley, all of those shots go to Jude Law, right? Okay. Matt Damon is purposefully made to look less attractive than he would, in fact was in The Talented Mr. Ripley. And all mm. of that is is offset onto Jude Law. So it's interesting to watch the way that the sort of nexus of fantasy moves through adaptations. Talking about fantasy, we'll, we'll get to that as well. I was just going to say we can add The Talented Mr. Ripley to the list for whenever we get to our sort of crime thriller sort of season. We'll do that in like Jackie Absolutely. Brown, John Le Carre. John uh, Lecare, yeah. Uh, yeah, we can so. definitely have that there because that would be interesting in that because especially, and I've mentioned, I mentioned this in our Breakfast at Tiffany's episode with us talking about the sort of mafia subplot thing is something mm -hmm. that I didn't pick up on any of that because that is a, a genre I'm, I'm pretty clueless on. So I would, I would love to do that at a later time. Yeah, I, I would be interested in digging through that. I've got ulterior motives, partly because I just love, I do love crime fiction. I love murder mysteries and thrillers and that sort of thing. So spending a, a whole season talking about that sort of thing would be my wheelhouse. This season seems to be mid-century queer literature. Yeah, and this was not deliberate. I don't oh. think it was like I don't think it was when we sat no. down and we already picked out what movies and what movies and books we would be doing, but I don't remember when we were doing that 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 was a purposeful that's what we're doing. I mean, maybe it's more just reflective of what we just generally read and lean towards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I was like some of some of the stuff I've been wanting to have a conversation about Myra Breckenridge, which is our next book for literally two or three years mm -hmm. so so some of it, it does reflect sort of personal current obsessions but it's interesting to me to see how everything shakes out and it's going to continue to shake out because we've got coming up we've got myra breckenridge we've got on the road we've got mm -hmm. reflections in a golden eye these are all novels that are yeah they're mid-century queer literature. i'll definitely when we do on the road which as you know M listeners may or may not i'm a kerouac stan like i i, I mm -hmm. do love jack kerouac i recognize that he's not a, a great person but i really enjoy his literature i find it very pretty and i also think that there's something there there is a sincerity or earnest earnestness that i admire but anyways uh when we do get to on the road i will definitely be calling back to the price of salt slash carol because of the yeah. sort of road trip aspect out and, and, and going out west together. So what kind of name is Bellevet? It's Czech. It's changed originally. It's very original. Well. And your first name? Therese. Therese, not Teresa. No. Therese Balavet. That's lovely. And yours? Carol. Carol. Okay, uh, so we, we should start with 
some sort of a summary of what's going on in Carol, because I think that even though Carol is probably better known now than it was in 2015, it's still possibly a book that many people don't have a good grasp on. Well, I can at least start us out. Maybe we can bounce back and forth and you can fill in some of my gaps. So talking about the book anyways, it centers around a woman, Therese. I'm going to call her Therese. I know that they, in the movie, they call her Therese, I think. In fact, in the book, there's actually a point where Carol calls her using the, that French pronunciation and it sort of like titillates her. Like that, that's something that she, right. she it, it becomes a sort of pet name type of thing. Right. So yeah, yeah I, I, maybe that's something in the movie that they shouldn't have just kind of adopted wholesale. But anyways, Therese is a young woman living in New York City in the early 1950s. I think the book takes place in 1952, or it's published in 1952, so it's just in that area. And she works at a department store, and she has a boyfriend slash fiance, Richard, and there's just a general ennui, I guess, just a dissatisfaction. She works at this department store, Fred, Fred, Frederick Works. Yeah, she makes a point in the book that everyone there is kind of unlovely or unlikable or desperate in some way. (laughs) Yeah, I think, and I think there's a way that that ties to class and labor in the book. So in in the book, she is an aspiring set designer. Yep. yep. Whereas in the movie, she's a photographer. Yes. Um, But either way, there's this sort of creative longing, a sort of provincialism that wants to be cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. Uh, while she's working at this department store in the dolls section during Christmas, this woman comes and orders a doll. Therese is kind of intrigued by this woman, ends up writing her Christmas card and stuff. It ends up being this woman named Carol. She is a more middle-aged woman, right? Yeah, she's older. I. It's not very explicit how much older she is. But I guess she's I old imagine- enough to be married with a child. Married with a child. Uh, I guess I kind of read her as mid 30s to early 40s is kind of how I, th- I read her. I think that would be fair. She seems to read as more mature and with it than Therese. But yes, Therese. so she's married with with a daughter, but it turns into this kind of love affair between Carol and Therese. And then Carol's husband slash ex-husband part of the thing is in the book you know she tells therese well we're getting divorced well we're getting divorced type of thing Mm -hmm. and then yeah her husband ends up sort of spying not spying on them himself but hiring a a private eye to spy on them to kind of take custody of of their daughter Right. And in the process here, one of the things that happens is as the custody battle and the divorce are sort of going on, Therese and Carol go on a road trip Yes, across middle America towards Washington, California area, although they don't quite get there. And then while they're there, they discover that they've been followed by this detective. The detective has recorded them making love in their various hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. And tellingly, uh, he, he does this recording using a spike that he sticks in the wall, which is a very sort of phallic intrusion. It's, it's mm-hmm. described as a sort of assault. So Carol has to go back to New York in order to clear up all this stuff. Before she goes back to New York, yeah. I just think it's worth noting that in response to them figuring out that this detective is following them and spying on them and stuff that... 
they're on their little road trip and Carol eventually pulls over and gets mm-hmm. out and kind of yells at the guy and then they go off and then she she says no you know what Therese get me my gun it is metaphoric of assault the way that he is kind yeah. of after them and spying it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a creepy thing and I think that is exactly. where we see oh here's where we're seeing that sort of thriller type mm-hmm. thing of it yeah exactly so Carol goes back to New York to deal with this she leaves Therese to wait and eventually mm-hmm. Therese gets a letter from Carol saying, I've got to end things with you or they'll never let me see my daughter again. So Therese goes back to New York. She starts to establish herself and we see that she's she's matured as a person. She's now an adult. And when she re-encounters Carol again, Carol says, essentially, look, I'm not I'm never going to be able to see my daughter unobserved again. Harge, that's her husband's name, Harge. Mm-hmm. Uh, has full custody now. And so I bought a house, uh, an apartment, and I want you to come live with me. Therese says no. Therese goes to a party. She sees an actress who is clearly hitting on her and reminds her of Carol. She thinks about going back to this woman's apartment, then decides not to, and she runs off to meet Carol. And the novel ends with her and Carol seeing each other across a restaurant and there is the suggestion that maybe they will they will now be together for mm-hmm. a while. That is the novel Price of Salt or Carol. So why was it called the Price of Salt? My understanding uh, is that no one really knows. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a discussion of salt several times in the novel. It talks at one point, and I don't have it marked, but it talks at one point about the taste of salt or a desire for salt or something like that. The best I can figure is that, and this is, I think I'm drawing on an article called Maternal Failures, Queer Futures, Reading the Price of Salt and Carol Against Their Grain by Jenny M. James. It appeared in the GLQ a journal of lesbian and gay studies. And in that article, it seems to suggest, or the the writer seems to suggest that the price of salt is what these women have to give up in order to live lives as themselves, live lives as women who love other women. So Carol has to give up her daughter in order, she has to pay the price of salt in order to actually possess this relationship with Therese. And Highsmith is very explicit about this. Uh, At one point, Therese realizes Carol chooses Therese over her daughter. The price of salt seems to be the price that people must pay in order to achieve happiness, fulfillment, however you want to define what they have at the end of the novel. So I'm sure you thought it was a man who sent you back your gloves. I did. I thought it might have been a man in the ski department. I'm sorry. No, I'm delighted. I doubt very much it would have gone to lunch with him. Oh, one thing I think that should be noted uh, mm-hmm. with the publication of it is that Patricia Highsmith had published this under a pen name, right? Oh, yeah, we should note that. Yeah, she had just put out Strangers on a Train, and it had just been optioned by Hitchcock. And she decided she wanted to write this novel, and her publisher said, and this is... This is all in the introduction to the edition I have by uh, Val McDermott 
in 2010. Her publisher basically said, look, we're not going to publish a lesbian novel under your name because it'll destroy your career. She went to another publisher and published under a pen name. And it wasn't until the 80s that it was released under her name. And when it was published, it was kind of a like a pulpy nickelback or dimeback kind of book. Yeah. Highsmith had a relationship with one of the sort of originators of lesbian pulp. And so Carol or The Price of Salt is very much in the tradition of lesbian pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the tropes it plays with and a lot of the character dynamics are directly recognizable as being part of that lesbian genre, the lesbian romance genre. So yeah, uh, what did I what did I think about reading it? I, I enjoyed it. I went into it without really any expectations. I do like that there is a way, especially in the beginning, with Therese and working at this department store, and as you mentioned, the people that work there with her, and she's just as oh, I'm just biding my time to get you know a real job, and her fiance or boyfriend or whatever knows somebody that can get a a real theater job kind of thing. I I really like that the book has an an emphasis on on class and and labor in it, that there's something kind of inherently yoked to the dissatisfaction that Mm -hmm. Therese feels with the life that she's living in New York City. Um, yes, that one of the things that with, with that she finds with Carol, and then going on this road trip, more joyous sort of living. I, I really liked how it was anchored in issues of of class and labor. Yeah, it's very much sort of taking part of the in the sort of post World War II discourse about class, about femininity, and about containment. There's an article that. I read by Victoria Hesford called Patriotic Perversions. I also read this one. You read this one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this, uh, in this mm-hmm. article, Hesford talks about Elaine May's idea of containment. Elaine May was a scholar who argued that the strategies of international containment in the Cold War were mirrored by strategies of containment at home. So just as the idea that the communists abroad were sneaking their way into the world, the global system. So too, there was this feeling that communists and other so-called undesirables were sneaking their way into America's domestic spaces. And so- Right. Specifically with targeting perceived queerness or homosexuality um, and what is later known as the lavender scare. And there's a couple of great books about this. One of them is called The Homintern. This idea that there was a global cabal of gay artists who were trying to queer culture and turn the society gay and weak and therefore communist. This was right. the, mm-hmm. the link, linkage that was made. In, in, contempor- in very contemporary terms, we would say that during the 50s and 60s, people were terrified that these writers like uh, Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote and so on and so forth were grooming culture to try to make it gay. And this is something, this is a discourse that is very, very old and also one that is, you can go on Twitter right now and see right. people. Yep, exactly. I was going to uh, say that. That's, that's, it's, it's cropping back up again. 
Yeah. And so mixed in with this was the idea of the predatory lesbian, which I do more sort of gay studies and lesbian studies, but basically the, the predatory lesbian is an older woman who will seduce younger women into the trap of sapphic love. And it's framed this, in a way of like taking advantage of that younger woman. She's taking and advantage of in, her youth and her innocence. And in the novel, that's Richard's response, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, yeah. who is Teresa's I can't remember if they're actually formally engaged or not, or if it's, I promise we will get married kind of thing, but whatever. Teresa's partner, male partner Mm -hmm. beforehand, what he says to her. I mean, do you remember that the letter that he writes her? So he's written her this letter. It's on the stationery from his family business, which shows that he's, he's finally done what Teresa always said he would do. He's given up his pretensions of actually being an artist and he's now a company man. Right. He's talking about a previous conversation or engagement with her. He says, I know I had stopped loving you then. And now the uppermost emotion I feel towards you is one that was present from the first disgust. It is your hanging on to this woman, to the exclusion of everyone else. This relationship, which I'm sure has become sordid and pathological by now that disgusts me. I know that it will not last. As I said from the first, it is only regrettable that you will be disgusted later yourself in proportion to how much of your life you waste now with it. It is rootless and infantile, like living on lotus blossoms or some sickening candy instead of the bread and meat of life. I have often thought of those questions you asked me the day we were flying the kite. Uh, That was when she asked him if he had ever been in love with a boy. I wish I'd acted then before it was too late because I loved you enough then to try and rescue you. Now I don't. So yeah, it's this idea of the young innocent girl who is drawn in by this seductive older woman. There's also the discourse of Freudianism here and particularly American Freudianism. Dagmar Herzog has a book called Cold War Freudianism that I've been doing a lot of work with on my own project. And uh, Herzog basically argues that at the same time that culture was becoming steadily de-Christianized, Freudianism became more and more Christianized so that things like libido, things like homosexuality were increasingly identified as problems to be solved. And they were problems that were almost universally blamed on mothers, right? Mothers Mm -hmm. were responsible for everything in the 40s and 50s. They made their sons gay. They made their daughters lesbians. They brought about destruction on an unbelievable scale to Mm -hmm. society. This is a very American style psychoanalytic reading of a lesbian relationship that he's offering mm-hmm. here. Therese doesn't have a mother, and so she needs a mother, and she focuses on this mother figure in order to resolve her own issues. One of the things that should be said here is that Highsmith is deliberately engaging in these tropes. These were tropes that were present in lesbian pulp at the time, right? The predatory lesbian doesn't just show up in mainstream entertainment. It's also a figure of fan, or she is also a figure of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a strong sense for me anyway, uh, to which Highsmith is directly engaging with a power fantasy in this book that makes it read not only as sort of a a cry from the heart for lesbians to have happy endings, which they never did in books of this period. Right. Lesbian pulp, in order to get past the post office, because there was a 
a rule against distributing so-called obscene materials. Right. In order to get around this, lesbian pulp and gay pulp would regularly have the characters either end up reformed, that is to say, they become heterosexual again, or have them punished in some way. So they die. Highsmith would later claim that Carol was the first lesbian novel with a happy ending. Did you think that the ending of this novel was exactly happy? No, because I saw I I was reading that, too, that she had said that or like that it had been kind of received that way. And I feel like that's an optimistic reading of the ending. I don't I I mean, I I certainly wouldn't say that it's a tragic ending. It's very ambiguous. And maybe that ambiguity is what makes it a happy ending for this kind of genre at this kind of time that it even allows the imaginary space for a happy ending that makes it a happy ending. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I mean, it's not as if, as you'd said before, the ending of it is they walk into a room and they see each other and they smile at each other. Yeah. And in the process, Carol has lost her child. Mm-hmm. Essentially, she'll see her again, but she'll she never says, see her like, again. A couple times as a, a mother, year, right? A couple times a year with supervision. So Carol's lost her child. I don't get the sense that Teresa's friend group is exactly terribly stable at this point. <laughs> I saw some people observing when the movie first came out. You've got to think about what sort of life these two women are going to lead. They're going to be living together as roommates. They can never actually admit what their relationship is to the broader world. So Mm -hmm. there's always going to be this sense of oppression kind of lurking around the edges Mm -hmm. of their relationship. Well, especially against the historical backdrop of when it is published with the Lavender Scare, Mm -hmm. that people are literally being investigated uh, or brought forth before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and, and which isn't to suggest that Carol or Therese would be brought in front of Congress. But nonetheless, that kind of, it's not just, oh, we have to live a closeted life. Exactly. You, you know, it is something that is actively pursued against in a legal sense. There's an atmosphere of distrust and, you know, almost terror that's going to be evoked. Like the I sometimes get impatient with ideas that the pre-Stonewall gay world was entirely lived in like dank closets because there were pockets of places where gay people were able to live quite openly by mm-hmm. their lights. But especially in Greenwich Village, time, where, especially in Greenwich Village, where yeah. Patricia Highsmith lives and where she, yes. you know, writes a lot of her stuff. I have to insist on this. Gay people throughout history have found ways to make lives that were livable. Right. At the same time, those pre-Stonewall years were not nearly as open as, for instance, the sort of life gay people were able to live in America six, seven years ago, even. Right. The relative amount of terror and of oppression was quite high during this Mm -hmm. time period. And it's something that Carol and Therese are going to have to live with for the the rest of their lives that does uh, make me want to and, and we should talk about the road trip a little bit uh but before we get to that i don't know if you thought about this or if you're thinking about this when you're reading it but the the class difference between carol yep. and therese on the one hand there are different things in the book such as say when they're on their road trip yeah, you can have the car. I'll send you 250 bucks. I'll send you more money. Like, I'll, you know, Carol's 
class position opens up obviously a lot more spaces for privilege and ability that Therese would not otherwise have. And that's one of the reasons that I think Therese is so drawn to Carol. Maybe this gets back to the sort of predatory woman trope, but that it is this Mm -hmm. woman that is like financially independent that like they can just, she can leave her job that she can leave her dead end job at this department store and they can just go hit the road kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's also cutting against that the consequences for Carol are higher than they are for Therese. That Therese yeah. gets a nasty letter from Richard. And it is, it's it's fucking mean and gross and, and cruel, but it's quite different from losing the ability to be a mother to your daughter. And so she has more opportunity and ability, but it also feels the stakes are higher as well. Yeah. Well, there's a move down in society too for Carol at the mm-hmm. end. Like she talks earlier about having owned a a furniture store. And at the end of the novel, she's back to being a a businesswoman. She's working again, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she has to leave this house outside the city, which in the movie is ridiculously ostentatious. It's like Mm. she's living on in Downton Abbey or something. She's living in West Um, End. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So she has to move down in society. She loses all of the security that she had from being the wife of, of Harge. Which, by the way, the names in this book are ridiculous. Harge and the daughter's name is what? Rindy. Rindy. Yeah. Uh, there's a podcast I listen to. I think it's this had Oscar buzz where they often will point out movies that were obviously adapted from books. <laughs> and one of the ways that they'll notice that is that the names are generally way stranger <laughs> if the if it came from a book than if I, it came from I wasn't, a screenwriter. I will say when I was reading it, I wasn't sure how I was su- supposed to pronounce Harge. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think I think in the movie they call him Harge. I think they do. Yeah, and watching um, the movie, I was like, oh, okay, it is Harge, and I think that's how I yeah. read it. But I I, I wasn't sure because it's not a name. I, yeah literally ever seen before in my life yeah it's bizarre but i mean one of the articles i read i don't even remember which one points out that the strangeness of harge and rindy's names kind of makes them non-characters in a way which rindy is literally a non-character she doesn't show up in the book at least to the extent she shows up in the movie in the movie she's fairly important Mm -hmm. in the book she's important as a symbol of what carol has to give up to but be she's always off page isn't she yeah i think so i think so i think we hear her voice once okay one thing i want to say in connection with uh the differences in class the differences in age much of this novels in my reading of it much of this novel's erotic charge comes from a sort of power dynamic in carol there seems to be a lot of interest in power in relationships, mm. specifically a struggle for power. The novel begins with Therese being a 19-year-old shop girl who meets this older woman. And this older woman, Carol, treats her like a child. Like I, I kept notes of all the times where she says, go to bed, you look tired, have some milk. When Therese tries to go against whatever Carol wants him to be doing. Carol flies into a rage. What's interesting to me is that by the end of the book, their attitudes or their position has shifted. 
So throughout the entire book, Therese is pining for Carol. She's always not saying how she feels entirely. She's always basically doing whatever Carol tells her to do. Over the course of the novel, she grows up. This is something that Carol herself observes when she sees her after not seeing her for a while. She says, you look grown up, you look mature. Therese has had a Bildungsroma. She's had mm -hmm. a, a growth as, as an adult. At the end, when they have their meal, when Carol offers to let her come live with her, they have this exchange. Therese is getting ready to leave, and she says, are you going to stay on? I'll take care of the check. I'll take care of the check, Carol said. Go on if you have to. Therese stood up. She couldn't leave Carol sitting here at the table with their two teacups there and the ashes of their cigarettes in front of her. Don't stay. Come out with me. Carol glanced up with a kind of questioning surprise in her face. All right, she said. There are a couple of things of yours out at the house. Shall I? It doesn't matter, Therese interrupted her. What we have here is a total upending of the power dynamic. Throughout the novel, Therese is the supplicant, and Carol is the one with the power in the relationship. At the end of the novel, Therese has all the power. She's the one that can decide whether or not she and Carol will be together. Carol is the one that's basically pleading with her to come back. So the novel's about power. Well, <laughs> it's about power and relationship. And I think that's where a lot of its erotic charge comes from. It's a I, very sexy novel, but there's no sex. Like there's no, there is some sex, but there's not a lot. And I the, think it's because there's a power struggle between them. The, the symbol I, that, that comes to mind with that is that how do they meet? She's buying mm -hmm. a doll. I mean, even in chapter one, there's different things that the narrator writes that support what you're saying about the ways that Carol exerts this control and kind of commands Therese. At one point in chapter one, a doll was a special kind of Christmas gift, practically alive, the next thing to a baby. Um, and then there's another time that, and this is Therese in responding to Mrs. Robichek, her boss, but it, it shows the way that Therese is basically obedient. And it, it, it's not just to Carol, it's to basically anyone, right? But Therese was repelled by the thought of trying one on. She wished Mrs. Robichek would lie down and rest again. But obediently, Therese got up as if she had no will of her own and came toward her. She is a doll that other people with power over her like play with, but she doesn't as if she doesn't have a will of her own. Yeah. And that's such a strange scene. It's not one that's replicated in the movie. Mm -mm. Um, yeah. She goes back to Mrs. Robichek's apartment. It's a weird, weird scene. Mrs. Robichek is described in very disgusted ways, right? Almost she grotesque. Mrs. Yeah. Robichek is almost grotesque. Right. And uh, one of the articles I read, it's probably maternal failures. Uh, one of the articles I read points out that Mrs. Robichek is, is sort of covertly coded as Jewish, which as a side note, we should point out Patricia Highsmith, tremendous anti-Semite. So, oh, really? I didn't know. I, I yeah. didn't, I didn't know that. Oh, she hated everyone. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, Phyllis, Phyllis Nagy or, or Nagy, who wrote the screenplay to Carol has an interview on YouTube where she talks about knowing Patricia Highsmith. And she says that, yeah, Highsmith was an anti-Semite, but she was the kind of anti-Semite that if she said something offensive and you said, oh no, that's offensive, she wouldn't get mad at you. But yeah, Mrs. Robichek, grotesque, ugly, uh, coded as Jewish, also not upper class or upper middle class. Right. So that class dynamic is right there. Too. Well, and an immigrant, uh, I think. 
and an immigrant. Yeah, she she doesn't have sort of standard uh, standard sentence structure at all mm-hmm. in her dialogue. So this early encounter with Mrs. Robachek sort of sets us up for the sort of dynamics that a Highsmith is going to explore <clears throat> later. Uh, so too does Teresa's memories of this nun that she keeps flashing back to. Oh yeah, um, who was who was another early mother figure. Okay, so you have older women women who take on the maternal role. Uh, one other thing I want to point out before we, before we go on to the road trip, which I know you've got a lot to say about, is the song that shows up. And I just want to mm-hmm. read you the lyrics that go with this. Uh, for you, maybe I'm a fool, but it's fun. People say you rule me with one wave of your hand. Darling, it's grand. They just don't understand. This is a song that is about being controlled by your lover. Yeah, right? I, I put a spell so on you kind of thing. Exactly. So there's a subdom element in the relationship between Therese and Carol that I think is very, very interesting. And I don't think it's something that's actually replicated in the movie all that much. What the road trip sort of, I think, is a particularly kind of American genre, and especially during this period with, of course, this is published in 1952, Kerouac and his his life on the road starts in like 1947, but this idea of using the highway system, this is before the interstate system, but using the highway system as a means of escaping whatever kind of suffocation you felt. And a lot of times it was that suffocation was centered in New York or like the Atlantic seaboard of some sort. And always with that road trip genre, it's going West. And of course, there's a long American mythos and history of romanticizing the West and West is where, you know, liberty is found. West is where the uniquely American identity is found. Of course, there's Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis uh, delivered at the World's Fair in Chicago. Um, Mm -hmm. Was that 1893? Was the World's Fair in Chicago, the White City? Um, Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But so he famously delivers his lecture there, um, the significance of the frontier in American history. And basically, for him, the West is what defines American identity. And it's the frontier is it's a moving line over the course of American history. But it's always one where the sort of civilized person must reconcile the uncivilized, wild, or even in Turner's own words, savage kind of lands. And that coupling of that wildness and that civilizedness is where a uniquely kind of American identity comes from. And of course, we know that like with the rugged individualism and things like that. But one of the things that is important for Turner in this lecture 
that he both opens and closes it with is that the frontier, which was defined by the Census Bureau as how many square miles or whatever, it, it had to do with population density, but that the that in 1890, the, the census I think it was 1890, the, the US, U.S. Census Bureau had declared the frontier officially closed. Like there wasn't a frontier anymore. It had all been inhabited. And he says this at the end of his lecture, basically, you know, we're at these crossroads where now we have to look back. The frontier can move so far, but you hit an ocean. And at some point you can no longer just put your identity on some future thing. You have to turn back and sort of address what you went over. And I think with the road trip in this novel that how often it's just described as going west. What road do we take out? 20, going west. It, it, but there's always just this repetition of there's not a direction there. There's not a destination. It's just go west, right? Go west, go west young man, go west and seek your future. Right. Uh, and and so that the, the west becomes, yeah, with the quote you said, that not uh, one of the things that's sort of unsaid for Turner is not only is that where uniquely American identity comes out, but it's also where uniquely American identity comes out and that we see it so much anchored in a, in a masculinity. You have to be rugged. You have to be this pioneer or trapper or my, you know, but w- whatever it is in that there's a way that Highsmith with this road trip subplot she does in this book, I think is playing with that idea of American identity and masculinity and the West. And she, but she undermines it. I mean, I think the furthest West they get is Colorado Springs. And then they spend time in Omaha. A lot of their big things happen. Well, like kind of the big event is like in Waterloo, Iowa. So, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. even by the time we're in 1950, that's hardly the West anymore. There seems something when they set out on this road trip, it's failed to begin with. And we only see the ways that it is that they never get west. They just get into like this, the Midwest and it's winter that it gets interrupted. This idea of, oh, we can go west and the destination doesn't matter. It's about this sort of life on the road and the freedom that that represents is not something that's afforded to them. Yeah. And sort of piggybacking off of that, one of the things that this journey west and the road trip in general is associated with is rebirth. You look at facing west from California's shores, uh, facing west from California's shores. I'm going to skip a line. He says, I, a child, very old, over waves toward the house of maternity, the land of migrations look afar. So Whitman sees himself as the archetypal American standing at the end of humanity's evolution around the globe. Obviously, he's erasing Native Americans and that sort of thing. Standing at California's shores, looking towards the east, China, he associates it with the Garden of Eden. And so the idea is that humanity, having made a circle around the rolling globe, is coming back again to the point of its birth. This idea of traveling as renewal is something that you see in Pilgrim's Progress. Right. It's something that you see in various different things, maybe even in Kerouac. You know Kerouac far better than I, but this idea of having a new lease on life, of finding something deep and true about yourself and being reborn, it's all tied up with this idea of travel. Carol and Therese cannot be reborn in this travel west. In fact, Therese only comes to maturity when she goes back east, right? It's the travel back east 
that makes her an adult. It is. Uh, yeah, I think it's in Chicago is where we see that growth most mm-hmm. when she stays in Chicago. She had because she had, uh, at first stays in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that once she she eventually, and this is after she talks with Abby, who's a far more compelling character in the movie, partly because it's played by Sarah Paulson, I think. Because obviously for a lot of the novel and the movie, Therese kind of hates Abby, the, the sort of yeah, yeah. jealous ex-lover kind of thing. But at the end- Which is more understandable in the book than in the movie. Yeah. But, but <laughs> in at, the book, at the end, there's a sort of, not like, hey, like we're chummy now, but a way of- at least this is how I read it, that that Therese has a better understanding of Abby and a more forgiving attitude towards Abby because she sees Abby as like all the shit I'm going through, Abby went through. And Abby is still kind of in love with Carol. And that's why Abby will mm-hmm. like do these things for her and be this liaison and stuff like that, because she's like Abby also cannot get out of her orbit. At one of the places they stop, and this is one of the I think this is the last place they stop before they confront the detective. They spent the first night in a tourist camp that was built like a circle of teepees, but that it uses yeah. this imagery of like the West and the colonized West that there, there seems to be an awareness that Highsmith, the, the writer, is infusing this book with. Yeah, the, the West, the mythic romanticized West is dead and like that's untenable or unviable for these characters. I'm trying to remember I've not seen the remake of Lolita and I've not read the book in a while. It seems like that exact same sort of location shows up in Lolita. Yeah, I, I think I, it seems like there is. Uh, talking about road trip novels that subvert the American mythology of the road trip, Lolita is a novel that I think could be productively read alongside Carol. What is interesting about that? I'm not very familiar with many road trip novels where they're not subverting the ideal of the the freedom of the road type of thing like every one is about how that's like yeah. delusional and like that's not a uh-huh. it, th- th- there's no solution or resolution there that it's always a sort of wishful yeah, it's kind of escapist like- fantasy type thing but in any of the novels i'm thinking of off the top of my head they all end in a sort of disappointment it's kind of like small town fiction in that way, which yeah. if listeners are not aware, I've written about <laughs> small town fiction. But the thesis of my my work in this, and it didn't come across as clearly as I would have liked, but it's that every time a small town shows up in literature or in film, it's going to be subverted in some way. Right. This is something that I think we could do a lot of critical work on, which is writers are often subverting cultural ideas that don't have a solid, direct presentation in the culture. The um, things that are sort of free-floating signifiers of yeah. very vaguely American or, you know, vaguely, yeah. but vaguely having to do with America and its mythos. But when they become that sort of free-floating signifier in that way obviously yeah it opens up a space that writers could say well i'm going to take this thing that people think is virtuously american and undermine it so yeah i think yeah small town fictions in the work that you've done certainly stuff with road trips and going out west with some of the stuff that i've looked at i think we can see that with expatriate literature but a lot of these tropes that it's all hey did you know that the great gatsby was about the american dream is unachievable really (laughs) wow Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break and then we can come back and and talk about the movie. Yeah, sounds good. All right, let's take a break. Dearest, 
there are no accidents and no explanation I offer will satisfy you. I like that. You seek resolutions because you're young. But you will understand this one day. And we're back. We haven't really wrapped up our discussion of the novel. It's going to be winding its way through the discussion of the movie, I think, from 2015, written by Phyllis Nagy. Phyllis Nagy was a, is a screenwriter. Uh, she was a friend of Patricia Highsmith's back when Highsmith was alive. Apparently, she tried for years and years to get this movie made. And it, it was only finally when Todd Haynes came on that it, that it happened. So this movie was, in some ways, I think we could say a labor of love on her part. And, and they it, specifically, it shows in some ways. And yeah, definitely. And they specifically, if I read this correctly, became friends basically in like Patricia Highsmith's like last, what, like decade of life. Yeah. So yeah. there was definitely, and maybe this ties into being a kind of labor of love, but the, a, a friendship in which this movie is also a memorial of or tribute to Patricia Highsmith in a way. Yeah, which is interesting because it is fairly atypical of the sort of things that in America people associate with Highsmith. In America, we think of her as a as a crime writer. In, right. Well, apparently that's what I, in Europe. Yeah, that's what I had said. Yeah, apparently right? like in that, Europe, they've always thought of her as like a literary writer. But in America, we're like, no, she wrote Strangers on a Train. You had not seen it before, right? I had not seen it before. It was enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> like, I, I really, you don't I, sound like you're very enthusiastic about I'm it. I'm not very enthusiastic about it. I, I mean, it. I was honestly kind of bored. I think it was when I was talking, and, and I didn't watch this with Elizabeth. I usually watch our movies mm -hmm. with Elizabeth. When I was describing it, the way I think of it is I can see myself really liking this movie. But I was not in the mood to watch this movie. And I only mm -hmm. like had to watch it for the podcast. It's a movie I would love to revisit when I'm in the mood for a kind of moody, gray, mid-century piece. I, there's nothing to mm -hmm. dislike about it. And that's why I wouldn't say I disliked it. I just, this, the music and score is great. Production design, set costumes the car like everything is great like it like the it, it's, its representation of mid-century is awesome obviously kate blanchett and rooney mara, mara. are yeah. awesome and as i had said before uh, sarah paulson is great in it and who is a i think more despicable in the movie than he is in the book because in the book he's more off page if i remember right but harge played by kyle chandler oh, yeah. and he shows up and i'm kyle just chandler like, mr early edition himself i was like god damn it clear eyes and full hearts can't lose man <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me that you think that harge is more despicable in the movie because i i watched a couple of uh interviews with the screenwriter and one of the things that people asked her about was whether she felt that she had made the male characters more likable than they were in the book. And she thinks she did. She thinks that Harge is much more likable in the movie than, or more understandable in this movie than in the book. Okay, I have two things to say to that. First of all, regarding Harge, I think he is more despicable in the movie because 
Kyle Chandler is a great actor and Kyle Chandler does a great job of playing this just like kind of gross, entitled, whiny, demanding sort of man and like what here and he, and he portrays it so well. But also I think he's more despicable because he's just more present in the movie than in the mm-hmm. book because the book is from, I mean, it's a third person narrator, but it's third person limited in that it comes from Teresa's point of view that by its very nature, we don't see Harge very much where we see him much more. And so I think like the very way that he is present in the movie makes him less likable to me because he's not some distant off page kind of faceless villain. He's like this gross guy in it. Second thing I wanted to say, I have annotated evidence because I take notes as I watch the movie of things I want to talk about. I have at one point, and I remember I wrote this note when we see Teresa, she's leaving Richard at some point and they're out in the rain and it's on like a a street in New York City and he's standing there and I think she like gets in a cab or something. And I wrote this note, I find Richard more sympathetic in movie than book, I wrote down. And then later after he like goes after her and shit. I'm like, I wrote, okay, maybe not period. And then a little bit later I wrote (laughs) definitely not period. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I wrote in my notes and part of this is the character of the detective is different in the movie. He's a charming young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not like this kind of gross, washed up old guy the way he is in the book. But when they first meet right. him and he's just this kind of like dorky little guy at the bar, I wrote down, LOL, mm. I like Tucker. <laughs> I had to revisit and I said, no, he's a fucking narc. <laughs> so I will say to Nagy's thing, I think I made him more sympathetic. I'm like, to a degree you did, because there were points in the movie where I found them sympathetic at the end of their performances or at the end of their characters. I still hated all of them just as much. But there were points early on in their character development where it's just like, oh, like, oh, Richard, he just wants to start a life with her, blah, blah, blah. Well, or, oh, Tucker, well, and he's I just think- this little dorky kid that's kind of intrigued by these <laughs> independent women (laughs) yeah well i think her point (laughs) i think her point too is that i mean men at all times but since we're talking about mid-century men at mid-century existed in a particular social context that did not tell them that doing certain things were wrong Mm -hmm. so like walking into your soon-to-be ex-wife's house unannounced because he owned the house Right. And so I think Negi's point is that these men are not monsters. These men are creatures of their society and they fair. act the way they do because no one has ever told them that that's not good. There's an extent to which Harg or Harge is m- more despicable in the movie, but maybe this just comes down to Kyle Chandler's big old eyes. You feel a lot more clear of eyes. his his clear eyes. You feel a lot more of his heartbreak. He actually mm-hmm. seems like he does feel something for Carol. So that when she says in that big speech that she gets, that's not in the novel, when she says, we're not ugly people, Harge, even though he's despicable in all this, you can kind of sit back and go, yeah, that's right, Mr. Early Edition. You're not ugly people. I see Which that. points maybe to his points maybe to the sort of utopian direction that Jenny James points to in in her article, Maternal Failures, Queer Futures, where she talks about reading both the book and the movie against their grain 
to try to recover the potential for a queer maternity. The idea that a lesbian can be a mother, which in a lot of queer theory and and feminist theory, people are very interested in disassociating womanhood from maternity. And what James, uh, Jenny James is trying to argue is that, no, you should be able to conceive of the possibility of queer motherhood. And that's something that Highsmith is not able to do and that arguably the movie tries to do, but doesn't quite succeed at doing in in terms of the way it it works out its uh, narrative. You made a point earlier about the novel versus the movie's perspective. The novel is very much to raise, to raise it's Rooney Mara's perspective, right? It's very much to raise his perspective. The book is, yeah. The book is, yeah. Mm-hmm. The book is very much to raise his perspective. All of the characters, including Carol, are kind of ciphers. Uh, Therese spends, a, I'm going to call her Therese and Therese, like, interchangeably from now okay, on. Okay, and I'm going like, to call her Therese. Um, Sorry, listeners. We just, yeah, we're talking about the same person, though. We're talking about the same person. <laughs> a lot of the tension in the book comes from Therese not knowing what Carol's intentions are. She spends an unbelievable amount of time waffling over whether Carol is actually attracted to her in spite of all of the evidence pointing to, yeah, Carol wants to get it on. The tension of the book comes from that. It comes from the way that Therese sees Abby Mm -hmm. and the way that Abby is a sort of threatening figure almost in a way that she is absolutely not in the movie. Harge is a cipher. Rindy never even shows up. The The entire book is from one limited perspective. And all right. the stuff we were talking about earlier about power dynamics and uh, fantasy and that sort of thing, it all derives directly from that limited perspective. The movie opens it up tremendously. You not only see more of Harge, you see Rindy repeatedly, and you see Carol having conversations with Abby about how she feels about Therese. And I cannot overstate how much that changes the entire relationship dynamic. Now you're not wondering what's Carol's intentions. Now you're like, okay, when will these two crazy kids realize that they're perfect for each other and they'll get together? (laughs) You're right. And so maybe there's a way that it can think of it in strictly kind of rom-com tropes. It's like, oh, don't you know you were just destined for each other? I don't know that is what it's doing, but (laughs) whatever. In moving it out and making it not about Therese. And to be clear, Mara gets like Oscar nominations. She wins a, she wins a, I don't remember if it's a Screen Actors. No, it's not a SAG award. She she does win an award, but it's all best supporting actress Mm -hmm. stuff right the very fact that she is nominated that her character is best supporting i think is a a, a signal that what the movie and who the movie focuses on changes but what is lost in that i think is the voice even though it is a third person narration as we talked about with it being kind of very limited and very focused through therese i guess as i was reading it, it i was very much kind of like this is through Teresa's voice, kind of, yes. that we see her vulnerability, her naivete, that we see those things in the voice, right? And that by not focusing it through Therese, we lose the way that her, that voice 
affects the sort of tone and then message of the book. The movie is, I, I don't know that that is a, a thing that's for better or worse, but it certainly makes it different where the movie tries to fill that gap in of the voice that is lost through cinematography and score and mood and Todd Haynes doing like what Todd Haynes does. I think it's, I, I do think that ties into it Another major change to it is in the book, Therese is uh, an aspiring set designer for plays in New York City. And in the movie, she's an aspiring photographer. And that ties into, I mean, she takes some of the photos of Carol. She's like, oh, so-and-so Davy or whoever was like, told me I needed to work on like human subjects or whatever. But that her focus on photography translates in the movie to its sort of emphasis on the cinematography in the movie and how it becomes a lot more about atmosphere in the movie. Whereas in the book, we see her a lot. How does she kind of study for and prepare putting sets together, she goes to the library and reads books of different plays. Uh, Nagy, Nagy talks about this a little bit in one of the interviews where she claims it was because it was more visual. It works better on screen to have yeah. someone taking pictures than going to a library and reading, putting which I think is true. Sets together. Yeah, which I think is true. But I think you're right. The emphasis moves from the voice of the sort of close third person limited perspective of Therese. And it moves to, frankly, Todd Haynes' voice, which is a great voice. Like mm -hmm. he's very, he's very familiar. He's done remakes of Mildred Pierce. He did his own period melodrama, Far From Heaven. He's very much engaged with 1940s and 50s melodrama. We're talking and he's stuff very like, engaged uh, with a queer storytelling on and very much as engaged well. with well, and these things, these things are are united in the like the sort of Douglas Sirk pictures, uh, like All That Heaven Allows, which stars Rock Hudson. These sorts of very beautiful, very emotionally open melodramas, women's pictures, essentially. And that's something that queer viewers have often sort of glommed onto, and it's something that Haynes is himself very familiar with. And so, one of the things he's doing with Carol is he's making a melodrama. And I don't mean melodrama in a derogatory sense, because I love melodrama. Well, there's also something to note in that a, a change in the movie, which isn't an actual change in the content, but it's a change in the presentation in that when it is written, it is contemporary. And in the movie, it is a historical piece. And part of yeah. my what I'm being informed here right now is an article called Sketchy Lesbians, Carol as History and Fantasy by Patricia mm. White. And it's in uh, the winter 2015 issue of Film Quarterly. And it, it talks about various things with the movie, things. It's somewhat of, of a re review and somewhat of an analysis. The reception of Carol at Cannes helps distinguish between lesbian representation as content and le lesbian representation as form. She says, discursively, lesbianism wavers between hyper-visibility as in the spectacle of female sexuality times two and an invisibility as epitomized in Queen Victoria's famous inability to imagine why lesbian sex would be criminalized given her inability to imagine lesbian sex. In the context of art, both poles can coexist under the mantle of the tasteful. So she, so she talks about how it kind of swings between those two things. But what this author argues that makes the movie particularly kind of compelling is its emphasis on history. She says, 
At the same time, Blanchett is right. Carol is designed and effective as a love story to pour. Depicting the fugue state of lovers is the challenge Haynes saw in the script and approached in part by consulting Roland Barthes' account of the Amor subject in a lover's discourse and sharing it with his stars. Barthes entitled his book with an indefinite pronoun, A Lover's Discourse, setting up a play between a singular obsessive eye, which individual erotic works, and a position, a lover, that the reader can inhabit in turn. In Carol, Haynes and his collaborators use point of view, mise-en-scene, and other formal elements in order to stage and to invite the viewer to share in what remains a specifically lesbian fantasy is a love story suspended in time, but located in history. And then finally, sorry, just just to finish up with what she says in this article, that talking about the ending, as we talked about the ending with the book, uh, that it's been considered this happy ending. Did you think the the movie was a happy ending? I mean, it's it's similar to the ending of the book. It's just yeah, it struck me as equally as enigmatic. Okay, it, I mean, part of that is because Kate Blanchett is herself so enigmatic. Yes, she's, um, mm. she's made for movies like this because she's got a face that could mean anything. Yes, um, this critic sees the end as a similarly somewhat optimistic ending. Uh, she writes, following the conventions of production code era Hollywood, a fade guarantees the happily ever after while barring the depiction of carnal consumption. In this film's ending, the seductive tilt of Carol's head, a bit like Rita Hayworth's Gilda, brings eroticism to the fore, while the hard sound and image cut leaves their pair physically separated. The lovers remain in their exclusive, eternally present tense, while the viewer is given both a tantalizing taste of the past and glimpses of a queer future. And so that uh, she argues it, it similarly is a happy ending, but not necessarily for Therese and Carol, but rather for the right. viewer that they can romanticize the past in a way and mm -hmm. also imagine a future, in, a future in such a way. There's a whole discourse about nostalgia and how nostalgia works. Some views of nostalgia see it as purely sort of reifying the past and wanting to go back. And some see it as a tool for reimagining the future and seeing what could be locating potentialities. And I think I think you could slot Carol in its position as a period piece into either of those categories, really, because mm -hmm. it, as with most of the Todd Haynes movies I've seen, it fetishizes sort of period detail. It fetishizes texture. It's very much in the sort of what Matt Zoller Sites calls the sensualist mode. These directors who really focus on texture, on clothing, on the cars, on the hair. It's just very beautiful. And so you can escape into a nostalgia for the past the way some people watch Mad Men and just feel like, oh, wow, wouldn't it be great if we wore clothes like that? This is a, a tangent from the nostalgia thing, but Carol smoking is something that is very much encoded as a sensual motion on her part, oh, both in sure. the movie and in the book. But sure, one of the sure. things I think the sketchy lesbians article makes this point. One of the things that the smoking does in Carol, the movie, is it positions Carol as a relic of an older time. So at the very beginning of the movie, she pulls out a cigarette to smoke in the department store. And Therese has to say, I'm sorry, you can't smoke here. So. Which that can't be historically accurate if it's 1952, I know. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were they were they were smoking in preschools at that point. Uh, so, <laughs> but that said, it sort of anchors Carol as herself a nostalgic figure 
contrasted to the modernity that is represented by Rooney Mara's Therese. Right. Rooney Mara is the new generation. She's what's coming. Carol is the old generation. And so to some extent, what happens at the end is a unification of modernity and nostalgia. Or, or a potential unification, because as the article you just read points out, they're not together on screen. They're in that last exchange. And then it has the hard cut. Um, and then it has the hard cut. So it's it, not, it leaves it's not a question. The, right. But that it nonetheless, it, it leaves it not for the viewer to imagine those right. things. So, well, let me ask you a question before we get to the, the main thing I, I wanted to ask about. Did you, what were your thoughts on the aspects of it, of its road story? They, they really cut that down. Mm -hmm. I was, I was disappointed because in the book, the road trip is so evocative. The road trip is so uh, significant. And then in the movie, it's a couple of stops and a sex scene, and then it's over. It really felt like they condensed it to an extent that was unexpected to me. Uh, because other adaptations of road trip type books from that period, especially in like the 90s and the 2000s, really like to focus on that Americana. But in this movie, they cut all of that so that they could have more scenes with Carol and Rindy. Uh, it, so it, it was disappointing, actually. I agree. I, I wanted more of it. Part of my own personal like disposition, I like being on the road, man. The road trip is a good chunk of the book. It's at least a hundred pages, isn't it? Yeah, two hundred fifty page book. Significant amount. Yes. Yeah. Um. And and you're right. In in the movie, it, it's cut down a lot. I can see why they would do that in the sort of uh, adaptation aspect of it. But what I will say that I don't understand. Where are the vistas, man? And maybe part of that's because they, as we just discussed before, they don't ever really get very far west. They get to Waterloo, Iowa, and we get the Waterloo, Iowa well, sign. It's not visual. And again, maybe this goes back to it being not from Teresa's point of view. It is visual. I'm sorry. I don't mean it's not visual, but there's there's not a sort of, I like in the expression of the book, the attention to the West and the and and the way that the West is ideal and American dream and all of these things, which yes, are fraught and we know that are doomed to failure. But they're still like described with this language in the book that the way the movie, it's just this is kind of a, a, a subplot of the overall thing. This is a very deliberate choice, too, right? So think about the confrontation with the detective. Uh, in the book, when they confront the detective and they get the tapes back from him, it's on the road. It's right? on the road. So Carol forces him off the road. She pulls a gun on him and she makes him go to his trunk and get the tapes out. In she writes movie, him a check. She writes him a check. That's right. In the movie, it's in a hotel room. I feel like it's more like aggressive and maybe it's because it's in the small space of a hotel room, but like, yeah. you know, kind of busting in the door and it's claustrophobic almost. It's like, holy yes. shit, this is much more tense. The movie is very much a movie of interiors. It's about being inside of places. And this might relate to the feeling of being confined in the closet, but it's related to this idea of being closed, being in the closet, being forced into a smaller space than you feel like you can occupy. Highsmith allows, even though she problematizes it, she allows Therese to feel the open road. She allows her to feel for at least a little bit that feeling of openness as they travel. I think that it's a deliberate choice, but it does take away from the whole road trip aspect of the movie. Yeah. Can't have me. I can't see my daughter. 
everything comes full circle. We gave each other the most breathtaking of gifts. One other thing about the movie that was is related to this idea of opening up the narrative, not opening up the spaces, is that everyone's so much nicer in the movie. I, I know we've talked about the men and the problems with the men, but let's think about the women. Okay, so we have Abby, who's played by Sarah Paulson, mm-hmm. who in the movie is a pillar of queer support <clears throat> for Carol. Yes, and she is, and, and she's even supporting to Therese. Right. Yeah. She's, so we have that. Carol's also nicer because instead of seeing her mood swings and the way that she lashes out at Therese, we see her crying over her child. We see her heartbroken over letting go of Therese. We see the emotional turmoil she's going through and all of the sort of controlling aspects are sanded off of her. And then Therese is nicer. If you read Therese's perspective in the book, and I think that this is related to Highsmith's perspective on humanity in general, Therese doesn't like anyone. Everyone annoys her. Everyone is obnoxious or grating or something. But it's generally read that Highsmith really kind of inserted herself into Therese, right? Yeah, Therese, I mean, in- Therese is the development of a fantasy that Highsmith had actually had. She had seen a woman at a store where she was working at the time, and she actually followed her home. And then instead of stalking her like Therese does in the book, she just went back to her apartment or, or her house and she wrote Carol or The Price yeah, of Salt. In fact, this is a quote, and uh, this is from that same article I was talking before, but she had ap- apparently done an interview with Nagy. And Nagy says, because Therese's Pat's stand in, she's virtually character free. So. And again, Nagy was friends with Patricia Highsmith. So Therese has a lot of spiky edges to her, is my point. I'm not saying she's an unlikable character, but she doesn't like anyone else. I know one Uh, of the adjectives that I saw when I was reading about Patricia Highsmith and, and prepping for this, one of the words that I remember seeing was misanthropic. Yeah. And so one of the things that happens in the movie, in the process of opening it up, is that all of these character edges are sanded down. And this may relate to why you found it so much less interesting than the book, because when you sand down those character edges, the elements of tension kind of go away. It stops being almost a thriller, Mm -hmm. right? Which I, I know, you know, Highsmith pushed back against being categorized as a thriller author, but the book really does. And I've said this about every book we've read, So whatever. (laughs) The book really does read like a thriller. It's got detectives chasing people across the country. It's got this power play between Therese and and, Carol. And you know more about the genre than I do. But one of the things I would associate with it is this emphasis on sort of interiority and, and psychology. Thrillers are about the psyche. And we definitely see more of that emphasis on the psyche or that like interiority, not in terms of spaces, but in terms of like perspective and stuff like that. Well, specifically, specifically, I think that thrillers, at least the kind of thrillers I'm most interested in, are about uh, psyches that are subtly twisted in some way. 
right? Mm-hmm. And this goes back to Highsmith in the novel playing with the tropes of the predatory lesbian, the sort of cycle of submission and domination that Carol and uh, Therese go through. They've got kinky personalities, these mm-hmm. characters. And the characters in the movie who are marvelously played, Rooney Mara is delightful. Kate Blanchett, like if Kate Blanchett only ever played characters from the 1940s and 50s for the rest of her career, <laughs> she would be set because she's perfect for that particular time era. So they're wonderful, but it's not that there's not a psychological focus, but it's on fluffy emotions. I say fluffy like I'm dismissing mother love. <laughs> it's it's on the fact that Carol loves her daughter and doesn't and, and also loves Therese and doesn't want to give them up. The focus is on Therese loves Carol. It's not on Therese is obsessed with Carol and wants to be controlled by her, but also wants to control her. And Carol also is trying throughout the novel to control Therese. And then at the end, she flips that and she allows herself to be controlled. I think that might be even being generous to to the movie in that the movie to me seems so much less, not just about kind of psychological interiority. It seems like a lot of the, the stakes in the book are lessened. Even the plot, it becomes so much more about style and atmosphere and all of these things. And that's why, like I said, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful movie. The performances are great in the right mood. I could see myself loving this movie, but at the same time, like having just read the book, I guess I was, it's like, huh, like this was a choice, I guess, in making it feel, I don't want to say boring because of the value judgments associated with boring, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what the other word I'm looking for is. There's less tension in in the movie. Yeah. And that's in spite of the fact that Kate Blanchett gets to give a speech about how she wants to be true to herself. It's in spite of the fact that the gun does still show up. You're right. The the basics mm-hmm. of the plot are still there. It's much like Breakfast at Tiffany's in this way, right. in that the basics of the plot are still there. But the movie is so tremendously different mm-hmm. in terms of what it's communicating. Right. Than what the book is communicating. I think that's absolutely right. You know, I like the movie quite a bit. I adore Kate Blanchett. I think she is perfect as Carol. I wish she could have gotten to show some of the nastier aspects of Carol's personality because I think, I mean, she can do that. We uh, know that she can do that. Exactly. We know that she can do that. I wish they had gotten been able to do the tension, but maybe this is the trade off they had to make. To get it made into a movie, because mm-hmm. even in the year of our Lord 2015, getting a lesbian romance as prominently released as this one was is not easy. And if Absolutely. they were to lean into the the kinkier aspects of the novel, if they were leaning into the more problematic aspects of the novel, I think they wouldn't have gotten it made, at least not at the level that it was made. I think you're right. I think, and I think that there would have been greater resistance to it in general. Mm -hmm. It goes back to that article you read on sketchy lesbians. I think that's the one that talks about how Blanchett would try in interviews to present the movie as sort of a love story, no matter who's part of it. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. a love story that could theoretically be about a man and a woman or two women. It's the love. Love is love is love is love, to quote Lynn Manuel Miranda. Okay, so politically, this is very much a move from 2015. <laughs> right. No, I, 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 uh, this is 2015 is the year that uh, the Supreme Court legalizes gay marriage. Yeah, I know because yes, I was uh, on my I was on a road trip that summer, and I happened to be in San Francisco and got into oh, wow. bri- and 
to got to pride in San Francisco. Like it was like two or three days after that announcement. Yeah. This is the political and you always have this tension and this is a tension that's present in the book. You can see it. I think this is discussed in patriotic perversion and also maternal failures. There's always a tension in terms of queer representation between domesticating queerness and allowing queerness to remain queer. And this Mm -hmm. is something that queer studies is very much obsessed with to some extent. This idea that if you're more accepted by society, what are you giving up? In the case of the movie Carol, what it gives up is all of the harsher elements of the book. And I mean harsh, not in the sort of representation of a society that hates queer people, because that's very much there. But the recognition that queer people also have harsh edges that make for really interesting storytelling, but don't make for great, what we would today call great representation. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's, I I think that's absolutely correct. Marge, I want you to be happy. I didn't give you that. I, I failed you. I mean, we both could have given more, but we gave each other Rindy. And that is the most breathtaking, the most generous of gifts. So why are we spending so much time trying to keep her from each other? Now, what happened with Therese, I want it. And I will not deny it or say that I... But I do regret and I grieve for the mess we are about to make of our child's life. We hard are both responsible. So I think we we should set it right. Now, I think that Harge should have custody of Rindy. Could I suggest we just take a break for a moment? No, Fred, would you let me speak? Because if you don't, I will not be able to cope. Now, I'm no martyr. I have no clue what is best for me, but I do know and I feel it in my bones what is best for my daughter. Now, I want visits with her arch. I don't care if they're supervised. I just want them to be regular. Now, there was a time when I would have done almost anything. I would have locked myself away to keep Rindy with me. What use am I to her, to us, if I'm living against my own grain. So that's the deal. I won't, I cannot negotiate anymore. You take it or leave it. But if you leave it, we go to court. And if we go to court, it'll get ugly. And we're not ugly people, Hodge. Carol. I did. I, I, I did have one more question that I wanted mm. to talk about briefly before okay. we move on to our sort of exiting the show. Do you think Carol is a Christmas movie? I get the feeling you have some ideas. So, yeah, I do. So thank you for asking. I did think of that as I was watching it. And, and may, I think it is heavier in the beginning of the movie. That's because in the beginning of the movie, it takes place around Christmas time. She works in this department mm-hmm. store selling dolls and she goes there because she's buying a Chris, like a doll for Christmas and blah, blah, blah. So part of it's just the time of the year. But what makes a Christmas movie? What is a Christmas movie? And we're not going to rehash this. 
But the like Die Hard's not a Christmas movie. Yes, it fucking is. I, I've I've gone into arguments with a good friend of mine that absolutely doesn't think it is. But I say yes, it is because Christmas movies have certain checkboxes of like what makes it. Yes, it's not just mm-hmm. around. It doesn't just take place around Christmas, and that's what the mm-hmm. critique against Die Hard is, right? So what could be any movie? Right. It doesn't even take place around Christmas. It's like well, it gets rid of a lot of, but whatever. Obviously, there's an emphasis on gifts and gift yep. giving. And usually in Christmas tales, there's a lesson of like, oh, the material gift isn't the real gift after all. Right. It's this right. larger lesson learned or, you know, whatever that is. And usually that thing is about family or love or, or joyousness in life kind of thing. Right. There's also the speculation about what happens with gifts and how people respond to the gift that they're given. Gremlins is a great example of this. Like it's it's a Christmas story about like when you give give a gift that a person is not able to accept. There's often a common trope in Christmas movies about I'll be home for the holidays of, of the difficulty in getting home. And one of the things that this movie does that's interesting with that is they sort of like leave home right around Christmas, right? But then there's a way that she needs to return home and she cuts she off the to road go back. Trip. Right. And then, yeah, just the sort of emphasis on sort of family and stuff. So is it a Christmas movie? I think yes. Could you make the argument that the movie doesn't have to take place around Christmas and then you could still tell the same story? I would say yes and no. I think that you would miss, well, plot wise. I mean, you could easily be like, oh, well, she was getting a doll for a birthday. Well, but mm-hmm. Therese is working at the department store because they need extra help because it's the holiday season. But that it it, it uses a lot of, it, it plays with a lot of these Christmas tropes. So that's why I say like, I think it is a Christmas movie. I would watch this again mm-hmm. around Christmas. Maybe I'll watch it around, maybe I'll add it to our Christmas list for like December. And like, maybe yeah. I'll be more in the mood for it. Because- Legend in between Die Hard and Gremlins. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and Batman Returns. Um, Batman Returns. But that I think it checks all of those boxes that I think kind of are major things for a Christmas movie. One of the kind of catalyst moments in the movie, though, it's maybe, I don't know, half hour into it or something. But is that scene that you mentioned earlier when Harge comes home to his home? But it, that's if you remember, I, I'm pretty sure it's Christmas Eve, right? She's playing on the piano. There's candle lights. There's the Christmas tree in the background. I'm pretty sure she's playing. I think it's Rooney Mara. That's is it Rooney Mara that's playing the piano? It's Rooney Mara that's playing the piano. And I'm pretty sure she's playing a Christmas song, if I remember right. And we see Carol playing with Rindy. I think in that same scene, like that, and and it's around the Christmas tree. There's these gifts everywhere, and blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. But that is also the scene where yes, Harge crashes in, and he's. He's a mess. I don't know if he's like drunk. I, I think he's drunk. Um, I think he he's drunk most of the time. Let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Mad Men days. Right, exactly. But so he comes in and he's like yelling at Carol and he doesn't even see Therese for the longest time. And eventually he does. And he's like, how do you guys know each other? And then I think it cuts mm-hmm. or something like that. But that right there, that there's this kind of deeply iconically Christmas scene that gets interrupted by the outside world. Yeah. And that's what the movie seems to do throughout is it has these Christmas themes that get interrupted by the outside world. I'm going to fucking make the claim that this is a Christmas movie. God damn it. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> we we've got a strong claim for the for a competitor for Die Hard as the greatest Christmas movie ever made. I wonder if you might help me find this doll for my daughter. Right, Betsy. Oh, she cries and wets herself. But I'm afraid we're all out of stock. Oh. 
left it too long. Well, we have plenty of other dolls and all kinds, actually. Right. What was your favorite doll when you were four? Me? Well, I never... Not many, to be honest. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to smoke on the sales floor. Oh, of all the... Forgive me, shopping makes me nervous. That's all right, working here makes me nervous. <laughs> you're very kind. Here she is. Oh, she looks like you, around the eyes. You think so? What did you want when you were this age? Well, let's uh, let's move on to recommendations and then uh, wrap it up. I think. Uh, what have you been enjoying lately? Why don't you start? Okay, okay. I'm going to go with something that's maybe thematically appropriate. Uh, I've just recently started reading a novella collection called Wong in Love and Bondage, three novellas by Wang Xiaobo. Uh, Wang Xiaobo was a Chinese writer from the 1990s. He died. I think of a heart attack or something sometime in the 90s. And this translation is by Hongling Zhang and Jason Sommer. So it's a collection of three novellas that deal with contemporary, well, then contemporary, 1990s China. And some of them are set in the future, the distant future of 2015. One of them is set in a park in Beijing. It's called uh, East Palace, West Palace. And this was the basis of a movie called East Palace, West Palace. And all of them have to do with dynamics of power and, and the erotics of power. East Palace, West Palace is actually about a cop who catches a guy cruising for sex in a park and they start up a sort of uh, sadomasochistic relationship with each other. Describing it this way, it sounds very, very serious, but it's actually quite funny. I'm going to read just a little section, if I may. Uh -huh. This is from the first story, which is about an artist who makes art that is so difficult to understand that he gets his license as an artist taken away and he gets <laughs> sent to a re-education camp. And in this camp, they will put the people through IQ tests, but these IQ machines double as torture machines. Now, this is all fantasy, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a one-to-one -one correlation with stuff that was going on in the, in the 90s. Uh, but it's, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll just read a little bit and then hand it over to you. It says, uh, in order to test the students' IQs precisely, the Institute first called a meeting to discuss what scores the students IQs should be in order to conform to reality. The instructors all agreed that these students were wild and stubborn. If the Institute allowed their IQs to appear too high, it wouldn't advance their thought reform. But my uncle was a special case. He always played dumb. To allow his IQ score to be too low wouldn't advance his thought reform either. Later, my uncle told me that he had circled around the measuring apparatus several times trying to find the plate that indicated which factory manufactured it, but failed. From the crude metalwork, he could tell that it was made in China. Therefore, he reached the conclusion that the machine used to have a plate, but it was removed. There was the evidence of a mark that supported this idea for fear the students would blow up the factory after they were released. The machine also had two electrodes meant to be placed on the testee's body. If the electrodes were placed too low, pubic hair would burn. 
if too high, the hair on the head would burn. Put simply, some hair was going to burn. When the canteen bought pig's heads and knuckles with the bristle not completely removed, they would send them over and let the machine do that job too. As a result, the IQ of a pig's head was determined to be higher than an artist, but a knuckles was a bit lower. To make a long story short, when the machine operated, it always smelled of burned bristle. Any other smell was caused by the ones who forgot the posted slogan, toilet before testing. And he goes on. It's a funny, savage little book. Uh, Wang Xiaobo is now apparently very well considered. I was talking to a colleague the other day, and he suggested that had Wang Xiaobo lived, uh, he would have been nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature. But it's a good story, and, and it continues some of the themes of sort of control and domination and power play that we talked about with relation to Carol. Okay. Well, my recommendation has absolutely nothing to do with Carol, so sorry about that. I hope that's okay. Um, this is more just uh, what I've been reading. There's two things I've been reading that are somewhat related. Uh, the one I'll start with, I guess, is to your note of the author you're talking about, he would have won a Nobel Prize. Well, one of the things that I'm, I'm I just read is from a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Kenzaburu Oi, who is a Japanese mm -hmm. writer. Um, he's primarily known for his uh, fiction, but what I read is Hiroshima Notes, and it's when he was a a younger, well, not even younger. I, I think he was. Well, yeah, I would have been in his young 20s, young to mid 20s when he wrote a lot of these, but they're just pieces of of journalism. They have a sort of like new journalism bent to it. it it's primarily, they primarily takes place in the 1960s uh, and he returns to Hiroshima and interviews survivors of the bombing, talks with a lot of like government officials, peace advocates. He's there during like um, the world peace summits and like disarmament um, conferences but there, there were different pieces that he wrote over, I think it was a period of a couple different years uh, for a magazine in Japan. But it's really good in that part of the book is tragic and horrific. And he talks a lot about uh, the ongoing effects, radiation sickness, infertility, birth defects, all of these things that I think a lot of times at least in the West or in America, we hear about like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and we think, oh, it's like a hundred, I think like 130,000 people killed at Hiroshima. Well, that's like in the blast itself. Mm -hmm. And we don't think that like the sickness that was caused for, for decades after this, right? And so there's a way that he really emphasizes the tragedy of uh, the ongoing effects of it, but also that he gets to in sort of the second half of the pieces in it, like one of the chapters or pieces in it is called like On Human Dignity, The Moralists of Hiroshima. You can see a tinge of kind of existentialism in it. And he does indeed use the word like inspired and hope in On Human Dignity. He, he argues that both the attack itself, but then the way like the response of survivors, like both of these emphasize like an inherent human dignity in people that maybe was lost in the total war mindset that characterizes the end of world war ii it's really good and he yeah he's a nobel prize winner he most of his stuff is on fiction another book i was going to talk about is timothy morton's hyper objects philosophy and ecology after the end of the world it's 
was published in 2013, but I only just recently came across it and the idea of an hype, a hyper object, which is basically a sort of concept that he argues that transcends time and space. And the reason that I fell into this was doing some of the stuff of my research, like with atomic bomb stuff. And, and he argues that that is, but he focuses it much more on the contemporary moment and sort of global mm. warming. And he's adamant in calling it global warming, not climate change, but the ways that basically just sort of like phenomenology and epistemology in this period of hyperdigitization and ecological catastrophe at the same time. Okay. Sounds good. Well, next episode is going to be an episode I've been looking forward to for a while, which is Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge. Uh, we're going to have a guest with us that time, Carl Watts, who's a friend of both of ours. Have you read a lot of Vidal? at all i have read almost no vidal but you do a lot with like mid-century america you've worked with truman capote that sort of thing i feel like i've read so, everything by somebody that was friends with vidal okay <laughs> but i don't know that i've read any vidal himself but yeah like any vidal himself you know, so. okay good so we're gonna have a we're gonna have a good range of sort of experience with vidal himself myra breckenridge is a spiky difficult book so it's going to be really interesting to see where the conversation goes next episode definitely well i look forward to it and i i hope y'all look forward to it as well all right well thanks for joining us everyone join us again next time when we will be talking about myra breckenridge meanwhile keep safe see ya bye Should just probably note that shortly before we started recording this, Philip Beidler, he was a scholar who worked on war, uh, did stuff on the Vietnam War, particularly. He also wrote a book that I used in my dissertation uh, called The Good War's Greatest Hits, which was about memory of World War II in popular culture. Uh, and shortly before we started recording this, uh, he passed away. And it was a, it's a tremendous loss to, to the University of Alabama community, but also to, I think, academics more generally, because he was fearsomely intelligent and relentlessly kind. I've never yep. heard anyone say a bad thing about how he would address them as students. Mm -hmm. He was always supportive, always kind, and always welcoming. Well, and very much interested in defending his students and yes, and their well being. Um, and yeah, that is, I never, I didn't have a class with him and he wasn't on my committee. I had had exchanges with him in the hallway, but that was about the extent of it. But yes, in the wake of his death, from everything I've seen, everything is about just how kind he was. And another thing yeah. that it's not just, yeah, it's not just the UA community, and you, you didn't say it was, mm -hmm. but thinking about how many students over the years of his career mm -hmm. that he influenced, because you yes. hardly meet anybody that took a class with him that wasn't like inspired or touched in some way. And the scope of that, he was at UA forever. There's a yeah. guy in my department here. He did his master's at UA like in the late 80s or early 90s. 
you went to, you did your PhD at University of Alabama? Yeah. He's like, do you know uh, Phil Beidler? Uh-huh. <laughs> there was that conference that you and I and Will went to in Indianapolis. And I don't know if you remember this, but we, one of the, during the plenary speech, like over dinner, we ended up sitting mm-hmm. at a table with some random people. And one of them had done some level of their grad school at University of Alabama many years before. And Phil Beidler was the one that everyone would always go to, A, because he had been there forever. So he was just this living yeah. memory. But also, I think, because of how memorable of an, a, an educator he was. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, my very first article, published article, came out of a seminar I took with with him. I wouldn't have written that article if he hadn't been there the whole time cheering me on and giving really good feedback, but also just encouraging me because confidence is hard to come by when you're in graduate school. It's it's always good. You know, there are the teachers that push you and the teachers that cheer you. We need both of them. And Phil, I mean, not to say he didn't also push us to be better scholars, but he was a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Like that's the kind of kindness that I think we need in the academic community, just Absolutely. generally speaking. And definitely so, something I try to bring into my pedagogy. Oh, yeah. He, he's, he's been an inspiration for me in that regard as well, for sure. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, you can email us at projectionistlendinglibrary at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at PLLibPodcast or on Instagram at PLLPodcast. Our cover art is by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at designedbykit. The music is Rhapsody in Blue, which is freely available on the Internet Archive. Have a good one.